Alright, so let's do the Torah and tea for this week. Uh, we'll do a review. This is uh, the Chukas, name of the portion, Chukas 1. Um, and I'm not sure why it says here 5781. That's when we're actually giving the class, so okay. So that's Chukas, so it's not Chukas 1, it's the portion of Chukas. We're giving the class, and this is based on Lekut Sikhas Volume One, Volume Eighteen, Chukas One. That's the uh, that's the basis for the talk today. Now, what is the meaning of the word Chukas? Let's we'll see. We'll study a little bit inside. And Chukim are known as statues. What happened to? One second. I lost everybody. I don't know what happened here. Hold on. <coughs> Let me see what happened here. Oh, here it is. So, chukas um, means statues. I'm not sure exactly in the English, when you say a statue, uh, how it differs from, say, a law, or how it differs from a rule. Uh, but in in the Torah, the word chukas, a statue, represents a law that is not logical. Which means, Rashi explains, Rashi says that people will say to you, why are you doing this? It makes no sense. Sometimes when people ask, what is this observance? We can tell them very easily. That makes, it's illogical. So why do you give charity? Or why do you honor your parents? Or why we uh, celebrate Pesach? Uh, why do we keep Shabbos? So we, we could explain. It has a rational explanation. But sometimes some of the laws of the Torah don't have any logical, any rationale, any explanation. So the question that the people around us, the nations of the world, <coughs> they're asking the Jewish people, why are you doing this? What it doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing these strange things which you don't have an explanation? So basically, <coughs> the Torah said, this is a statue. This is a rule. It doesn't have a reason. Our portion uh, deals with what happens, what is the discussion in the Parsha? It deals with what happens when a person touches a dead body. The person who touches a dead body becomes defiled, becomes Tomei. Now, this isn't like touching dirt where there is any physical dirt and then you go and you rinse it off, and you wash away the uh, physical dirt. Uh, this is really uh, a spiritual, a defilement spiritually. A person who is Tomei, who is defiled, who touched a dead body, for example, which is one form of Tumah, is not permitted to enter into the Bet HaMikdash, into the sanctuary. A person who is Tomei, is not permitted to eat any of the holy foods, special foods. Uh, so he's considered to be spiritually tummy. When they go to the mikvah, in most cases, they become spiritually clean. So the mikvah is water, but it's not water that uh, sort of cleans you literally. It's a spiritual idea. So what does the portion talk about? 
It talks about a person who came in contact with a corpse, with a dead body. The person that became in contact with a dead body becomes Tommy. And the Torah teaches us in this portion how he would become pure again. How would he become pure again? So in addition to the mikvah that we talk usually, in this case there is a red heifer. A red heifer which has to be purely red. Now you know today it's also a very, very unusual that there will be a purely red heifer. Red heifer means to me that it doesn't even have two black hairs. It has to be totally red. Also, it cannot have any defect, and it also could not have been used for any work. That's the red heifer that you use, and then you actually take the ashes, you burn the red heifer, you take the ashes, you put it into the water, you add different ingredients, the cedar, the hyssop, the... uh, the thread, the crimson thread, you mix it all in, and then you take the ashes of the poro, of the red heifer, a whole long procedure. That's the discussion of the portion. But the portion begins with the words, Zos Chukas HaTorah. This, what you're going to learn now, is actually the statue. This is a rule that doesn't make sense. But it doesn't just say that it's a chukah. This is the chukah. This is the statue. This is the one item which literally does not make any sense. Why? Why is this so unique? So, what? why is this a, a statue? We're going to talk today a little bit about the idea that everything that we do when we do mitzvot, when we study Torah, so some of the mitzvot that we do and some of the Torah that we study, we are able to comprehend. We understand it. But actually the Torah is telling us that the part that we understand and the explanations that we have are really a very minute, it's a very small part, really, of the Torah. Matter of fact, most of the Torah, even what we do understand, is a chukat. This is the statue of the Torah. All of the Torah is a chukat, really. Everything is not understood. We don't really have a full comprehension of the Torah. And this, however, is sort of the ultimate chukat of the Torah. Why is this the ultimate chukah of the Torah? So, let's give an example of statues. Let's see what are the, what are other things that the Midrash brings down. There's many, many uh, items. You know, a lot of times people come up and say that you find benefits like even things we don't understand. As for example, eating kosher. As for example, washing your hands before you eat bread. There are various different items that we do, and we can't always explain them why we do them, but then later on we see the benefit in hygiene, we see other benefits. That's not the reason why we do it. And as we said before, the washing of the hand is not for the purpose of hygiene, that's a separate washing of the hand. So, but a lot of times when we follow the Torah later on, it turns out that being careful with what the Torah says has actually a health benefit, has actually uh, a good, it's a good practice. But what are the examples that he gives of, of statues? So this is talking about, for example, one of the Medrash gives is marrying your brother's wife. Now, of course, while they're married, there's, 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 uh, she's a married woman. But what happens if your brother passes away? So then the Torah forbids to marry 
a brother's wife. Now, sometimes the Torah has a mitzvah to marry your brother's wife. That's called the Leverite marriage. That's called the Yibum, which means the Torah talks about if a brother dies without any children, so the other brother must marry actually his wife. But if the brother had children, then he's not allowed to marry his wife even after his death or after the divorce. You can't marry your brother's wife. Why? So that's considered one of these statues. Then you have what's called kilayim, mixtures. You know, you can't have, uh, I don't know if you heard the term shatness. Now let's say you have garments that you have wool and linen mixed together. That's called shatness. You can't wear that. Uh, let's say you have a horse and a donkey pulling the plow. Can't have that. Two different animals. Kilayim. Let's say you want to have plowing uh, grain uh, together with a vine. Can't do that. Any two types we see you can't mix. That's called kilayim, mixtures. What's the problem? That's called a chukah. I'm just giving you a few examples of what the Midrash says. Another one was the goat that was sent away. You know, on Yom Kippur, they had two goats. One goat was sacrificed, and the other goat was sent away and thrown off a cliff. And that carried sort of all the sins. That's also called the Chukam. I'm just bringing down these three laws because that's what the Medrash brings down. But I just wanted to make the point, even though there are many others, chukim, which are statues, the Torah says, zos chukata Torah, which means the red heifer is the statue. It's more than it. Why is the red heifer more of a statue than everything else? I mean, what makes something a greater statue, more of a not logical than something else. So, only the red heifer, so heifer is called the statue of the Torah. Now, King Solomon, King Solomon was the wisest of all people. And a lot of things that people don't understand King Solomon was able to understand. And he writes in Kohelet, he writes like this, I tried everything, I tried wisdom, I tried to figure out things. He says, I thought I'm smart, he said. King Solomon said, I thought I said, I am going to be wise. I'm going to figure everything out. However, I was disappointed. It's distant from me. You know what? I'm not as smart as I thought as I am. Unfortunately, most of us don't think that we are smart, so smart to begin with. But King Solomon, who was the wisest of all people, he thought of himself that I'm smart. And then he says, no, it's far. What was he talking about when he said, I thought I was smart, but it's distant from me? The Medrash says that when he thought he was smart means he thought he could figure out all the Torah. Because all the other statues of the Torah, King Solomon being so smart, was able to figure out. But when it came to the law of the red heifer, he could not figure out. He says, I can't figure this out. Which means that even King Solomon, who was the smartest, and was able to figure everything else out, but when it came to this particular law of the red heifer, he said, I can't figure this out. So it seems to be something which is 
so difficult to understand. But yet, the Midrash tells us that God did reveal it to Moshe Rabbeinu. While even King Solomon didn't know the reason, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know the reason. Moshe Rabbeinu, it was revealed by Hashem. So one wonders, if Moshe knew the reason, why could Solomon, who was so smart, not know the reason? And why did Moshe Rabbeinu not share the reason? If Moshe Rabbeinu knew the reason, so why didn't he share the reason with the other people? You know, we find that Moshe Rabbeinu is called the good eye. You know, to us, a lot of time when God blesses us something with something good, but we want to be the only ones. So let's say I have something special, then I feel like, oh, only me. I don't want anybody else to have it. I should be the unique. I should be the only one. That's sort of a selfish kind of a approach. A real and a right approach is if I have something that I can share with someone else, of course, I don't need to be the only one. I love to share. Let other people have it as well. That's called Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is called Toiv Ayin. He had a good eye. God granted Moshe Rabbeinu certain privileges and he revealed to him and he gave him certain privileges just for Moshe Rabbeinu because he deserved it. But what did Moshe Rabbeinu do? He didn't keep it for himself. He went and he shared it. He shared it with everybody else. He says, everybody, give everybody the opportunity. Get everybody. Let everybody have part of it. Let everybody enjoy these special privileges that I had. So, the question is, Moshe Rabbeinu knows the secret. Hashem told him why we do the Parah Duma. He explained it to him. But Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't share it. Why didn't Moshe Rabbeinu share with us? Why didn't he tell us what the reason is? Well, this tells us it's not that the reason is unknown and Moshe Rabbeinu can share it, but it's not come, it says comprehend, it has to be comprehensible, it's not comprehensible, sorry, that it's not something that could be understood. Which means there is certain parts that the ordinary brain cannot accept. People cannot accept. You know, we have a lot of time, situation, which we can't accept, we don't understand. We see people have tsuris, we see people suffering, we see some people who are evil and seem to be very successful. It bothers us. We don't understand it. There's certain things. It doesn't mean that somebody has a reason for it, that there could be others may not have the information, but Sometimes we don't know the reason, but sometimes there are just items that are just beyond. They're beyond the human intellect to be able to accept and to appreciate and to connect. Just don't doesn't really sit with the person. Doesn't sit. so when we say that Moshe Rabbeinu did not share it. Or some, Solomon could not understand it. Why? Because it was not something that could be understood. It was beyond the intellect. So it's not a matter of being very smart. It's just, it's not something that you could understand.
Why did Moshe, why did not Moshe share? Moshe couldn't share it. He could, he could say words, he can tell you, but we won't be able to understand what he's talking about. So how did Moshe Rabbeinu get it? If the Hashem that can do anything was able to reveal to Moshe incomprehensible ideas. You know, Hashem can do anything. So Hashem is able to reveal to Moshe things that are not logical. He can, he can, how could Hashem do it? Hashem can do anything. So, Hashem gave Moshe that special ability to understand something which is not understandable. But we all accept it. But then the question is, so why only to Moshe? Why was it given just to Moshe? Now, this whole idea that we're talking about over here, not being able to comprehend, why did the Torah give us laws that we can't comprehend? It seems like there is one law which is really uncomprehendable, which is the law of para. This is something which no explanation helps. Why did the Torah give us a law that we can't understand? Wouldn't it be better if we can understand? Wouldn't it be better if everything made sense? Wouldn't it be better if things were logical? Why do we need to have such kind of mitzvot that people challenge, that people question? Why is the Torah not something, or why were the mitzvahs are not something that we can all understand and appreciate? Why do we have to have laws that we don't get? And that's why it actually says, this is the chukah of the Torah. Because what the Torah wanted us to really realize that even when we do mitzvot that we think we understand, we still have to do them in a way of acceptance. We can't just do a mitzvah, even those that we understand. And you know, many times, you know, we've brought the example, people who choose and pick to only do things that they understand are bound to make a mistake down the road because since they're just committed based upon their logic, what makes sense to them, and that can change. You know, when we were chosen like a Jewish people, we sort of got into like a marriage relationship with Hashem. A marriage relationship with Hashem means that we declare that we are loyal to Hashem. You know, sometimes marriage makes sense at some point. Sometimes down the road it feels like uh, maybe it's not so good for me. And unfortunately we see that I think the statistics are that 50% of marriages end in divorce. And and the reason why that happens is because in the beginning it made sense to them. In 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 the beginning they were in love. It was logical. And now they lost interest. Now it's no longer logical. So but that's the 50% that choose to divorce after the marriage. But then the other 50%, they have a higher, a more loyal sort of connection 
in which they commit themselves to be together, even if logic says, well, maybe maybe you shouldn't. The relationship that we have with Hashem cannot be just a logical connection. Because if the relationship was just a logical connection, so when then when the logic stops dictating, then we would drop it. The Torah gave us at least this one mitzvah, which is totally not comprehensible, to give us a sense that everything that we do, zois chukas that everything that we do has to be in the level of commitment beyond just that makes sense. So even the things that do make sense, to know, to go the extra mile, to go the extra effort, to do beyond the reason, to do beyond the logic. And that's why Hashem gave us a mitzvah, so that our commitment in a marriage should not be just a logical. It should be in a way that we make space for the other person in a beyond rational way to go and keep our level of commitment even during times where we find ourselves challenged, even during times when we find ourselves uh, illogical, staying connected. I mean, that does not include all situations. I mean, we're talking about everything within reasons. You know, the Jewish people, after such a Holocaust, who wanted to be Jewish or who wanted to be religious, had a lot of questions. Where is God? How could he allow such a thing? So, logically, it didn't make any sense. People that connected to Hashem only logical, it didn't make any sense. This was illogical. But because the people that came through, even after all their sufferings and all the losses and all the illogical occurrences that happened in their lives, and yet their connection to Hashem was in a way of a chukah. It was in a way of a statue. It remained strong. It remained even though it wasn't something which was logical. So every mitzvah that we do, essentially, we have to remember it's really a chukah, it's really an acceptance of Hashem's yoke. And even every time we understand Torah, we're learning, we're trying to figure out, we know that there is much more of it which is not understood. It's only a small piece that we understand. If we appreciate the fact that there's a lot more to it, then we subjugate ourselves. And then we say that my intellect is limited. This is a wisdom of Hashem, of God, which is unlimited. And therefore, you accept it. You know, a lot of times, when you have a question, and you know, you're bothered by something, and you look up to someone who knows more than you, who understands things more deeply, and you say to yourself, well, I'm bothered by this question, so this great rabbi who has a much better understanding than I do, he must have the same question. If he's not bothered by it, if he's accepting it, then who am I to question? Uh, I've seen this a lot, you know, by the Rebbe, I've seen it a lot that uh, when the Rebbe approach and understanding in so many different areas is so profound and so powerful, so I say to myself, you know, if it's okay for the Rebbe, I mean, 
the Rebbe wrote to somebody that he lost close relatives to the Holocaust. And after the Holocaust, the devastation, and the Rebbe suffered a great deal at the Holocaust itself. And yet, the Rebbe continued to plant the amuna, the belief, the trust, and most important, the hope. The hope, the hope in a better future, better mankind, better times, the coming of Mashiach. The world will be on the higher level. All of us need, I guess, a chukah, that acceptance. But Moshe Rabbeinu, a Rebbe, they are so in tune with their spirituality. They are so part of something greater and spiritual and loftier. Their amuna isn't challenged. They're just subjugated. Their whole life is a chukah. They don't need a statue, a law to tell them that they need to be going beyond their intellect because that's who they are in essence. We have to tell ourselves that there is more, there are statues, but the Moshe Rabbeinus, they can know the reasons. It doesn't matter to them because they are in essence uh, subjugated. You know, we live now in very uh, difficult times. You know, we're so worried about Israel. We're worried about what's going to be, what's going to happen. And there is just uh, so much worries. Uh, it's hard a lot of times on us you know, because we care. We care about uh, the Jewish people. We care about the people in Israel. We care about what's the future going to be like. How are we going to be able to overcome all of our difficulties? And I guess what we try to do is we try to turn to the Moshe Rabbeinu in our generation and we seek guidance and we seek to get inspiration from their holiness and from their level of uh, purity. So they are our chukah, they are our beyond what we can comprehend. I'm saying this is that just this week on Sunday was the third day of Tammuz. That was the 27th your site of the Rebbe. Now, who would expect that 27 years after the Rebbe's passing, everybody is inspired and everybody is out there doing the work and everybody is studying and with ever more vigor and with increased enthusiasm. It's just mind-boggling to see the Rebbe's influence. So while we talk about 27 years that the Rebbe is no longer with us over here in a physical way, but you see the Rebbe's spirit, you see the Rebbe's energy, you see the Rebbe's guidance, but his motivation... Uh, the Rebbe motivated the Rebbe was a motivator he motivated people to go ahead and do what's right and also go ahead to motivate others to do what's, what's right he motivated, he gave us he made us excited about it and uh, the Rebbe was an endless flow of knowledge and uh, holiness and insight in the human condition, it was just in every area but 27 years later the Rebbe's impact is as when he was with us physically and to see the 
Rebbe's followers and those who continue the work, you take even the studies of, uh, they have the Pooh Institute, and they say that the one stream of Judaism that is growing in leaps and bounds, and the majority of American Jewry, one way or another, are starting to have some sort of an association with the Rebbe's Shluchim, with the work of the Rebbe. I mean, it's astounding that after 27 years being here physically, the Rebbe can still do this to all of us, to keep us all inspired and going and uh, and, a, and a whole new generation. That's like mind-boggling. So it's something which is not understood. It's almost like this chukah. It's like this statue. It's something which is beyond. But the Rebbe created this with love, with care, with compassion, which not with not judgmental approach, which reaching out, appreciating every person for who and what they are without judging them at all, which is hard to do many times because naturally we judge people. But that is what the Rebbe demanded and expected and preached and asked us. So it's like a chukah, it's like a stature, it's like a non-logical phenomenon that 27 years later it's ever-increasing, ever-inspiring, and ever-reaching further, further corners in, in the globe physically, as well as reaching further spiritually, people who were like totally given up on, you know, we didn't expect at all, and to still be there for them and in every way, we're not only talking about making people more religious, even on a simple level, to be there to encourage people, to give them a kind word, lift their spirit, be helpful to them, physically financially, morally, bring joy to people's life, make them happy, make them see the positive in life, give them courage to go on, bring them hope. The Rebbe has done all that and continues to do that. How? So many years after physically not being here, the Rebbe motivated and this keeps on going and going and not just going, it keeps on increasing. And uh, this is a chukah, this is a statue, but to the Rebbe this was all natural. That is who the Rebbe was. And we just have to try to do our share and be kind to people, be nice to people, and try to be helpful to people, to encourage and inspire people. So that's a little bit about Gimel Thomas, and I say this also, I have uh, my uh, birthday coming up in a couple of days actually, on the, the day we're doing the L'chaim, it's actually my uh, my birthday also on that same day, the 10th day of Tammuz, and um, it says on your birthday, you know, you sort of make a little bit of a summary of your life, you know, up till that point, <clears throat> with prayers and uh, God willing, with Hashem's kindness, up to 120, as they say, in Mitzvah Shabbat. Uh, and I I look back, you know, uh, put it this way, without telling ways, I'm entitled for Social Security. So... <laughs> so Anyways, uh, thinking of that, growing up by the Rebbe's uh, courtyard, court uh, Rebbe's court in his uh, four cubits where the Rebbe is and uh, being part of 
of that it was a a very special privilege and um hopefully you know the Rebbe uh, as I said the Rebbe gave us so much and the Rebbe gave us uh, and we really uh, want to say this that my birthday is coming up that I have a lot to thank the Rebbe for on a personal level and anybody who joins any program or any class by extension you know this is this is all the holy work of the Rebbe you know really through his shluchim, you know, through the, uh, and uh, for all these years that I was, I was born in uh, the Rebbe's court. That's where I was born. I was born and I was raised over there. That that was my, uh, that, that was like, uh, and I said that from the my very beginning, right, from the very beginning, uh, it was the Rebbe's blessings that sustained you know, my parents and then myself, and uh, I related in the shul how I got my name Chaim, that it was the Rebbe that gave me that name. Uh, my name Chaim, I have my second name is Svi, Herschel, that's my second name. But the first name, Chaim, was given to me by the Rebbe. When I was born, my parents had a concern, so the Rebbe said to give the name Chaim. So, actually, my life itself, that's been given to me by by the Rebbe. So, uh, I want to go to the next uh, Sicha for a little bit, but that was just like a side point talking about the Rebbe's Yorzeit, uh, the third day of Tammuz, as well as it. And also the twelfth day of Tammuz, which in Mitzvah Shem we're going to have a class that's going to be next Tuesday. Uh, that's the day that the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, his father-in-law, was freed from prison, so that's a whole nother celebration. Uh, the previous Rebbe had great self-sacrifice under very difficult circumstances, and originally the previous Rebbe was put in jail, and they wanted to actually uh, do away, uh, put him to death, God forbid. But then eventually, miraculously, on the 3rd of Tammuz, it was changed to a uh, exile, and then eventually on the 12th of Tammuz, he was allowed free, 12th, 13th of Tammuz. So we'll have more time to talk about that. Let me just share a few minutes uh, for the time left with the other, uh, the other part of the Sicha. Um, this is in... Up, that's it. So this is in the second Sicha. So again, we were talking about in the verse, remember we were talking about in the first Sicha, we're talking about Hanegeya b'meis l'chol nefesh odom. A person who touches a mace, a mace means a corpse. Any human being touching a corpse. If you touch a corpse, then you become Tomei, you become defiled for seven days. I explained to you already before. What does it mean you become defiled? Spiritually, you can't go into the Bet HaMikdash and you can't eat anything holy. It's very interesting. One who touches the body is impure. Right? How about the body itself? A corpse... Is it impure? I know if you are aware of, but you know, the procedure for a Jewish uh, burial is that you do a tahara. You put the body in a mikvah to purify the body. Uh, matter of fact, that you would sprinkle today, they don't always have a mikvah, so they put, there's the second uh Tear what they do, they put nine kavim, the water, on the disease. But nevertheless, we have something which is called a tahara. But that's another step in the procedure. One would logically think if touching the corpse makes you tummy for seven days, so the corpse itself is definitely impure, right? Now, 
What difference does it make? The corpse, you're burying it. Yeah, pure, not pure. What is it going to do? So, here is an interesting story. So, you know, there was a woman, we learn in the uh, story in the uh, Navi, there was a woman who was very, very kind to Elisha, to one of the prophets. And he built for Elisha uh, a special room so that whenever Elisha, that's the prophet Elisha, would come by, he'd have a nice place to stay. He'd have, she built him a, with a bed, with a lamp, with what he would need. She made him a very comfortable place so that the man of God, that the prophet would have a good place to stay. And one of the times the, uh, the prophet says, uh, what is it that this woman needs? She's so kind to me. I'd like to give her something. So his attendant, the assistant to the prophet said, well, she doesn't have any children. So Elisha gave her a blessing and then she gave birth to a child. Unfortunately, the child was out with his father in the uh, field and he got a headache. He tells his father, my head, my head, he has a headache. And he passed away. So the mother of the child was very upset and in so much pain, she immediately ran to the prophet and she said to Elisha, what did you do? I didn't ask you for children. You offered to bless me with children. And now, look what happened. This blessing turned into a tragedy. And Alicia was quite... There's a whole long story there. I'm not going to go through the whole story. First he sent his attendants. <clears throat> but eventually... Eventually, Alicia comes back to the home. And he finds the child's lifeless body on the bed. And Alicia prayed and did various different things and he finally lied on the child and he breathed into the child and the child was resurrected, revived. The child became alive again. This was This was the resurrection of the dead. Okay, that's the story brought down in Tanakh about with the child. So now, so what happens with the child when it woke up? When it woke up, this child was dead before. So if a dead body is in itself tummy, so that means when he wakes up, he was already impure. So maybe he's still impure or not, or we're going to say that the body itself is not impure. So other people that touch the body, but the body itself is not impure. So, there's various different other interesting uh, uh, scenarios. Like, for example, the Talmud asks, uh, what about, uh, we know Lot's wife, when they were escaping, when they turned over the city, she d- turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, is she considered to be a dead body? Would she, does she defile other people? There's another story in the Tanakh. I'm not sure that another child was revived. Anyways, it's a whole discussion. This is a very interesting, lengthy discussion. But what is it that we can learn from all this? That You know, that in essence... You know, this whole idea, sometimes we make mistakes in life. Sometimes we become defiled. But our defilement are just small items. We missed out on certain things. We missed opportunities. We, but sometimes 
we become like totally lifeless. We become like totally disconnected. There is, as long as a person has some energy in themselves, as long as they have a life, even if they make a mistake and even if they go in the wrong directions, but still, they're connected to life. It's easier to resurrect because you're still alive. But sometimes our mistake is so deep that we are like dead. We don't have any more, we don't have a soul anymore. We're just, we don't have a soul. Our soul is no longer with us. We've distant ourselves and we don't have a soul so we're like we may not be dead physically but we're dead spiritually because there's no soul left you know you ever hear the expression the personal person would say you're soulless you don't have any any soul left to you that's a deep level of of impurity that's so what happens when we when we wake up? Can we wake up? Is our impurity touched us in such a way that we can no longer come around, get back to ourselves? This is the statue of the Torah. Even if we were dead, even if we were totally neglected ourselves, even if we left ourselves go, on a spiritual level, and we think that there is no more redeeming factor for us. We've gone so far, we've done so many bad things, and we feel that we're lost. The Torah says no. This is the statue of the Torah. You still have that body that is connected to your soul, and you can always revive. You don't... that. Tumor, that defilement doesn't stay with you. That defilement goes away. All what you gotta do is wanna become pure. You wanna become alive again. If you wanna become alive again, you can do it, even if you missed out a lot, and even if you're <coughs> I think that you messed up your life. So, anyways, that's an important message that never too late and never feel hopeless because you can always revive and become pure again it may not make sense but that's the statue then you can do it